welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest, Major General Sharon A. Smith. General Sharon is currently serving as the Army's Director of Personnel, is a member of the Army's Executive Board, and is recognised as the most senior female officer in the British Army. Commissioning to the Royal Signals in 1992, General Sharon spent most of her early career in regimental duty in Germany, during which time she completed three operational tours to the Balkans and subsequently as Signals Squadron Commander to Optelic in Iraq. Following command of the 22nd Signal Regiment and on the MOD staff as Director Capability, Resources and Scrutiny, General Sharon took command of the 1st Signal Brigade in 2014 first woman in the British Army history to command an operational brigade. In 2019, she was appointed Director Personnel, becoming the first woman to sit on the Army Board. Outside of her command duties, General Sharon is Assistant Colonel Commandant of the Ashton General Corps, Master of Signals, and the Vice President of the Army Football Association. So General, thank you very much indeed for uh, taking the time to uh, be with us today and to share your experiences. They say that um, leadership starts with the leader. So I wonder if we could start um, getting to know a little bit more about yourself. Um, could you tell us a bit about your, your background, your childhood, and perhaps some of, your, some of the defining experiences of, of that time or any key role models that shaped you as a person you are today? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, well, thanks very much for um, interviewing me. Uh, I mean, I, I guess my, I would describe my, uh, my childhood, uh, which is, I guess, the first defining moment in anyone's life, is, as, as a blissfully happy childhood. Um, you know, I was brought up in the northeast of England in a very loving, stable home. Um, I, uh, you know, I sort of lived amongst my friends. We all sort of tripped off to school together. Um, and I probably... Uh, you know, there weren't enough hours in the day to, to do all the things that I wanted to do. I, uh, I then left, went to university. I was sponsored through um, the final years of school and then into to university. Uh, so I describe it as all as, as perhaps a little bit boringly normal. Um, and I guess the surprising thing was that despite all of that, I, I wouldn't have described myself as somebody that had an awful lot of self-confidence at that point, which I suppose is curious. And my parents, I would say, not surprisingly, were a huge uh, influence in my identity, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they both had a, have, had a really strong uh, work ethic, were very selfless in their approach to their work and the family, and just were very authentic in that sense. Um, and I guess I can see some of that in myself. You know, that's, that's I think, part of my DNA. You mentioned there about um, you felt you had lack of self-confidence in those earlier years. Where do you think you've nurtured that from now? What's really helped? I mean, I guess I not, there wasn't really a reason for me to not have self-confidence. But I, you know, I, I wouldn't describe myself as lacking self-confidence now. But I, you know, even when I look back to when I joined the army, I know that I was looking at people around me going, gosh, I'm not quite as good as them. Uh, and, you know, that sort of slight comparison in terms of how confident or capable I thought I was going to be and I don't know maybe maybe you never really shake that uh, completely uh, but of course my childhood my upbringing and sort of then my experiences they were all about building that self-confidence I mean one of the most defining 
things that I was involved in as a kid was um, Duke of Edinburgh's Awards, which lots of people would have been also. But I think not only did that sow some of the seeds for building my self-confidence and building my love of the outdoors, uh, but I think I also saw just what opportunity can bring. You know, we went and looked at sort of national events and I would, I would meet people that were from all walks of life, people with much tougher backgrounds uh, than I had ever uh, been exposed to um, and people from very much more privileged backgrounds than perhaps I'd been exposed to. And of course, to see what something like that does in terms of offering opportunity and what change that can mean uh, in somebody's, you know, it's like a sliding door moment, isn't it? And, and so, and you mentioned earlier about um, a university cadetship. So you joined the army in 1988, is that right? Commission 1988? Uh, well, I was, I went to university in um, uh, 1988 as a cadetship. I was then, I graduated from Sandhurst in 92. Okay. Um, and why the army? Um, I know you've got a bit of uh, history uh, within the family in terms of service. I understand father was in the Navy, Naval Reserves and brother served in the army as well. Was it, was it always an inevitable path for you? I don't think it was inevitable. I, uh, I heard a lot of my brother talking about what he was going to do. We brother and sister siblings were quite competitive. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do a bit of that too. And uh, that's, <laughs> that's not necessarily a reason to join the army, but that was, that's what sparked my interest, I think. Um, and my, my father particularly was demonstrable in you do whatever you want to do uh, and look at the forces. They offer you great opportunity. And I, you know, just sowed the seed from that point. And so you're looking at your earlier career, I see you saw service in the Balkans, Iraq, Latvia, Germany, and no doubt many other places. When we look back as leaders to see how we were nurtured and how we developed as individuals and individual leaders, we often look at our successes, but many people would say um, it, it's best to look back on the failures and how we, how we handled those and what we learned from those failures. As you look back as a, your time as a junior leader, were there any, again, defining moments or uh, times where you felt you'd failed or made mistakes and, and what did you learn from them? Uh, so there will be lots of them and there's still lots of them now. Um, you know, I still make mistakes and learn from them constantly. I think there's probably two things that I look at and say that's where I have significantly learned. Uh, I mean, first of all, when I first joined as a junior officer, I think I reflect back and now can see where I was trying to fit in. I was perhaps trying to be a little bit like everybody else around me. Uh, and of course, there weren't that many people that looked um, and behaved like me around me. So I, I can see that I was trying to fit in. And that's everything from, you know, how I what my interests were, how I dressed, how assertive I was, because I was I was trying to be like everybody else, I suppose. And it's something about confidence that underpins all of that. Uh, but of course, what I completely missed was that uh, the strength that I could bring was not about being like everybody else around me. It was being comfortable in my own skin. Um, so I, I'm not sure I could point to a defining moment, but over time, I learned that. And I guess the second one, uh, which was maybe not as a junior officer, but uh, perhaps more round about being commanding officer as I moved on from, from that point, I had been, you know, I was always very diligent. I was always very conscientious. I did everything that I was, that I needed to do. And I think when my roles and responsibility were de more demanding, I just worked a bit harder. Uh, anyway, I then got to a point and realized that actually, you know, it's not about just running fast or working harder. 
what I was bringing was, you know, my brain, my intellect, not necessarily that I could run faster to be able to cover everything that I needed to. You spoke just then about um, your your wider interests. You mentioned that right at the beginning. And a number of senior leaders we've spoken to recently, um, CGS on his previous podcast, Eddie Jones last week, um, and a number of others have talked about the importance of having broader interests outside of, of work. And clearly your work is extremely busy and you've worked hard all, all, all your life and all throughout your career. But it's important to have those outside interests to, to engender that diversity of thoughts and experience. So what are your hobbies and interests that, that, that mm. do that? Uh, well, do you know, I think, first of all, before my hobbies and interests, I do think sometimes it's just doing something different to the day job. And for me, for a large part of that, that's been about my family. I'm very, very proud of my family and I genuinely enjoy spending time with them. And that in itself provides balance uh, and contrast to uh, to everything that I'm doing as director personnel. And of course, when I then got time in between all of that, I have either invested in running you know could I go further could I go for longer could I be part of a team that goes longer learning something new so I'm not so good at the running anymore but I'm learning tennis I'm pretty rubbish at that too but you know that you know learning something new so that I completely zone out on everything else and for that moment in time it is a mental release as much as physical activity which I quite enjoy I spent a lot of my time as a child in the Lake District and I often describe that that is now part of my identity or part of my DNA uh, and that's where I go to breathe so where you know I'm very lucky we go there a lot as a family and that also provides a bit of balance so that's your escape in many ways that is my escape yeah and I think I think you put the uh, nail on the head there in terms of of, of balance um, it's something I think a lot of people and a lot of leaders have learned particularly throughout the uh, the COVID experience yeah but it's not easy it's not easy and we have to force ourselves to do it I think Absolutely. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned families. I, I won't touch it now, but there is a question I'd like to come back to in terms of um, how much uh, we do for our families and how much more we can do. But we'll come back to that. Um, you've, you've spoken on uh, previous interviews about the importance you feel of empathy and emotional intelligence in leaders. Um, I couldn't agree more. I mean, ultimately, leadership is, is, is in the people's business. It's a human endeavor. For, from a personal perspective, are these traits that have come naturally to you or have these developed over time? I don't really know. Um, I think for many of us, they will come more naturally than for others, but we can definitely learn and nurture some of that as a quality. Uh, you know, I've always enjoyed being around people. Uh, you know, if I track back where I learned most about myself and how to work as a team, that was all about, you know, seeing yourself as others see you and seeing others through their eyes, what life experiences is like for them. So. Uh, so I guess I've had a natural inclination towards it, but I definitely also focused and learned and developed, um, you know, just how much that is a central part of our leadership. And, and, and sitting where you are now and with your sort of 30 years of experience and now a, a major general of the British Army, and you've got a pretty broad view of the organisation. Do you think that that trait, particularly emotional intelligence, is, is prevalent throughout the army? Yes, I don't think we would all always have referenced it as emotional intelligence. But if I look at how we go about delivering our outputs. People are at the absolute heart of it. Our values and standards are at the heart of it. And we know that we are nothing if we can't work together as a collaborative, inclusive team. Therefore, it is prevalent that we have emotional intelligence and we have empathy. Do we always get that right? Perhaps not. But do I think it's absolutely part of us as an organization? I do. 
Excellent. Thank you. Um, and again, I, I, I wonder if I could ask you to reflect over your over 30 years of experience now, three decades of experience in the, in the British Army, and specifically your position as a female leader within the organization. I wonder if you can touch on some of the challenges and indeed opportunities that you have faced as a female leader in what is often seen as a male-dominated institution and how these challenges and opportunities may have changed over time or not. I mean, the challenges, I guess I would simplify to say that that I was clearly a minority for a lot of the time, uh, still am. Um, and, uh, you know, for a long time that I didn't feel like I quite fitted in. I don't know, it wasn't a conscious thing, but I think looking back, I could see how that was playing out in my trying to fit, which I've already mentioned. Um, so I think that, you know, that was a challenge and perhaps that makes it a little bit more lonely at times. Um, I think the second one, which is clearly related, and it comes back to self-confidence and self-esteem in terms of just being comfortable in my own skin. I think because I wasn't looking around me and perhaps feeling like I was, you know, reflecting uh, the rest of the organisation, that I didn't always feel comfortable in my own skin as a consequence. Um, and inevitably, I've, I've normalised some of all of that. Uh, and, you know, I'm not proud of that, but, the, um, but I suspect I have in terms of, uh, some loose use of language and some of our behaviours, which I think could could on occasion have been a bit more inclusive. So I think it's a combination of all of that, that I, I can look back and see the challenge. I'm not sure that I could have pointed at all of that as I was going through my career. And, you know, we, and I think as an organisation, uh, we are very alive to that. And we have already put, um, you know, profoundly different mechanisms in place to try and mitigate that. And that's everything from, uh, you know, we, we have a, an army service women's network uh, where there's, you know, those perhaps slightly lonely moments are less so because there are, you know, friends to our left and our right that we could uh, reach out to. Um, you know, we have much stronger mentorship, I think, than we ever had, which again is about developing and nurturing talent and, you know, really allowing people to, to be the very best they can be. And of course, as an organisation, we are definitely driving at improving every aspect of our behaviour, which can, you know, include some of our, our language and, um, uh, you know, broader pieces of behaviour. So, so I think those challenges might still be there, but we have put things in place that I hope mean they are not as challenging as they might have been um, over the last 30 years. And just on that, and I'll, I'll, I'll sort of broaden out to some wider sort of diversity issues uh, in a minute, if I may, but just looking at defence's commitment, defence is, is, is looking to get 30% representation of women at um, and your rank or above by 2030, and yet, it's, and that's across all, all services, and yet where we are now as an army, it's about five, just shy of 5%, I understand, of, of, of females in the brigadier to general rank range, and just, just shy of 10% for sergeants and, and warrant officers. Uh, it's great to hear, and, and I know of many of the initiatives that are happening in, in this regard to close the gap. Do you, do you think we're moving fast enough? Is there more we can do as an organisation? Yeah, there's more, there's more that we can do. Um, and I think we are, in the last six months, I think we have stepped up our game uh, across defence. And I feel genuinely optimistic about some of what I see as very clear uh, intent from our chiefs across defence and 
that intent uh, being supported by action. Uh, and I don't just mean by them personally, because that's very clear that there is their personal leadership around it, but also in actually what we seek to do to make a change. Uh, and whether that's about our ability to attract more in, uh, whether that's about that we have a better lived experience and therefore retrain, retain and, uh, you know, offer a full career in terms of progression. Uh, you know, across all of that, I see us taking action. Great, thank you. And I'll come back to a couple of more um, strategic leadership uh, questions in a minute. I'd, I'd just like to finish off this part by um, reflecting back on yourself as a leader, a nice easy one. Uh, what defines you as a leader today? That's not an easy one. <laughs> um, the, uh, um, I, I'd like to think that I, I'm an authentic leader. Um, and uh, that sometimes that has been sort of reflected back to me. And, and maybe there's a bit of wishful thinking in there too, but I think being authentic plays to so much in, um, you know, in terms of selfless leadership, inclusivity, you know, really seeing people for who they are and that emotional intelligence. So I'd, I'd like to think that that would be how I would describe myself. And how do you define authentic leadership? What does, that, what does authentic mean to you? Because it's a word that's often, often used. And I, I, I want, sometimes wonder if it means different things to different people. What, what does authentic mean to you? Oh, so I think, I think to me, it is about that I'm comfortable in my own skin. So I am what I am. And, and I recognize that uh, I have something to contribute because I might not be like everybody else. Uh, I think it's uh, the ability to see myself as others see me um, so that they can look at me and, you know, they, they can see me for the, for my, for the real me. And I think it's about being almost straightforward in terms of um, certainly I am a strategic leader but I can do none of what I do without either my executive leadership team that sits to my right and to my left or with the teams that work with us to deliver our outputs and I think I recognize that and being authentic is about recognizing that it's not just about the strategic leader it's about much more broadly the team and that's the inclusivity part. So nice segue, I think, um, onto some other questions there. So as a strategic leader, uh, you have a number of uh, key issues or institutional issues that you personally have to deal with under your role as director of personnel. Firstly, if I could ask, how do we as a, as a hierarchical organisation, one that currently doesn't allow lateral entry, how do we empower and harness the talents of our young people? Mm. Um, well, I think in a way that the, the two things are sli slightly separate, that, um, you know, we are hierarchical, but that actually manifests itself sometimes in how we behave. Uh, and that is, uh, that's not about our route of entry into the force, that's about uh, how we operate and how we behave. And just because we have lots of rank structure doesn't mean to say that we have to behave in a hierarchical way. Um, uh, you know, I can come back to that if, if that's helpful. Uh, I guess the other side of being hierarchical is that we, at the moment, our only mechanism to grow talent is to grow talent within. Uh, you know, so we, you know, we, we bring somebody in who demonstrates the quality and the aptitude. We invest in their knowledge, their skills, their experience and their behaviours in order to progress in their career. Um, and whilst that, I suspect, will remain the bedrock of the army, it shouldn't be exclusively that. Uh, and that's why I think we are looking at having different ways of defining our, our career pathway. 
Um, and part of that could very well be through lateral entry, which of course is what some of our programme Castle uh, is seeking to deliver. Uh, but I don't know that that's going to be at mass scale. It's going to be a, the ability to do that in a targeted way where there are specific skills that we might need, uh, not least because we can't grow them inside the force. Oh, and whatever, come back to your point, um, as you've as you volunteered there on, on um, behaviours and, and the hierarchy of the organisation. And I think we all understand the, the operational imperative for the organisation as structured as it is. But one could argue it does have an impact on on behaviours positively and negatively. I wonder if you'd explore that a bit more, please. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's exactly it. Just because we um, we have a, a very clearly defined rank structure, and we you know we do need that rank structure because it's about command and leadership, and it's about you know bounding when you know the the scale of responsibility. Uh, but I don't think that means that everything we do has to be slavishly done through the hierarchy. And you know how do we how do we make sure that that's not the case? Uh, well, that's where our empowerment comes in. Um, that's that I only think we can genuinely empower people to deliver if we have shared our you know our broader situation awareness of what everything is out there that we need to be delivering. So we have a common purpose and a common understanding. We understand our relative priority within that, uh, and then we can empower people to to go on and do that and not feel slave to a hierarchical checking back on any of that uh you know where the where the outputs sit in relative prioritization and i and i think i would also come back to the uh it, the, the leadership team so whilst i am the director of personnel we have an executive leadership team because we are better for that you know we are a team that will have different perspectives different views and the fact that we can do that collectively rather than in a hierarchy, I think means that we are better for it as a directorate. You, you touched on that diversity there in terms of diversity of, of both thought and experience. And we've t talked about um, gender, but I, I wonder if we could just broaden out the topic of diversity and what it means to be diverse. What is the army trying to achieve in terms of diversity or being diverse? Okay, so I think, um, I mean, we're already quite diverse. Whether we realise all of that potential all the time is, is, is a different subject, but we're already quite diverse. If you look at uh, a regular force, reserve force, our civilian workforce, the contractor workforce that we run alongside, that we attract across society, uh, and increasingly uh, trying to open up that sort of audience who, who might consider joining the army as one of their, their options. You know, that, that is already quite diverse. What we know is... Uh, that we want to be even more diverse than that to really be able to attract the talent, you know, the very best from all walks of life. Now, that can be, you could view that through uh, making sure that we can attract from, you know, the female workforce. Absolutely, it could be from um, uh, potential soldiers from ethnic minorities and I suppose those are the most obvious ones that we might want to but I would also say from different walks of life in society because um, we have so much to offer and increasingly that we that we are just a little bit broader in what does uh, an army soldier and an army officer have to be like and I think that comes back to your critical thinking your thinking differently being very comfortable to think differently and very comfortable to be perhaps more challenging in some of our environments so I think broadening some of that is what we're looking for in a diverse workforce uh, and let's face it we're going to need to be 
to face the challenges of the future, not least working in a digital world. Absolutely. I guess the two points are linked there as well, aren't they? I mean, that's about encouraging diversity and harnessing it, but it's also then uh, building the culture and nurturing, again, the culture of the organisation to accept and embrace, um, empower that diversity. Yes, being truly inclusive. I mean, um, I don't know that we can be more diverse until, uh, you know, unless we've completely cracked the inclusivity piece, you know, because it is about every single member of the team and their contribution, uh, you know, which are, clearly is why the two go hand in glove in quite a lot of our discussions. Uh, but I think if we want to be more diverse, it's about demonstrating just how inclusive we already are and how much more we're doing to be more so. Do we have more to do in terms of being inclusive? Are we an inclusive organisation and what more can we do? So we are an inclusive organisation. As I said, I think we have always recognised uh, that we the only way we can successfully deliver that which is asked of us is by working as a very collaborative team. So by de- you know, I think by default that means that's underpinned by being very inclusive across our team. Um, but 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 of course there is there is more that we could do. I mean, if I reflect on the army I joined to the army of today, I mean, gosh, you know, there's been profound progress in in being more inclusive. I mean, the hard barriers that were there when I joined are no are no longer there. Um, you know, so we have in a uh, in a relatively short period of time. Uh, the fact that we, you know, a young woman could join any part of the army today and do any role that she might want to. And, you know, that, uh, you know that's, and that's, um, that's huge. Uh, and I'm very proud of the organisation that has made that transformation in my career lifespan. Uh, but, you know, can we be more inclusive? Yes, we absolutely can. And I, so I think we would recognise that we, we are looking at ways of improving our culture or organisational culture. Uh, and we're also looking at how we help ensure that everybody feels included in uh, in the team, you know, and I guess it comes back to that belonging, you know, that we're looking after everybody. And, you know, we've put things in place to, to help do that. Uh, everything from our champions and our um, advocates to promoting allies throughout the chain of command. I wonder if I could keep on that theme of in- inclusivity and just broaden out to, to families and bring it back to what you mentioned earlier, what sits at the heart of your your, your life um, and your passion outside of work is your family. Um, much is made of uh, the nature of service that, that is inherent in army life and the sacrifices that, that, that we all make um, uh, as part of the profession of arms. But less is known about the sacrifices that the our families make, without whom many of us may not be able to, to do our job. Do you think we do enough for our families? Um, So so rightly, our families should hold us to account and, um, you know, expect of us uh, to support them. Uh, And we are doing more, I think, to recognise that uh, quite a lot of our um, dependents are frustrated by how easy it is for them to have their own career and their own uh, work, uh, frustrated around uh, the lack of ability to have appropriate childcare when needed because we're mobile or, you know, uh, deployable. Um, And then some of our frustrations around accommodation and our welfare services. So I think in every aspect of that, we are looking to do more and to do better, and rightly so, because none of us could do what we're doing without the support of our families. I mean, it's interesting because, um, I mean, they are as much about our ability to deliver outputs as us on our own. And I often think that my boys, when they were younger, um, they would be continually doing the 
why can't I leave the army? I would see more of them. I'd be there more. I wouldn't go away uh, on a kind of perpetual rhythm. And of course, now that they're a little bit older, um, they're incredibly proud uh, that I'm in the army. And they're, and they're very proud of what the army's about, what the armed force is about. And, you know, I think they feel that they're part of that. They're part of the service to the nation in that way. And I, clearly they're 13 and 14, so they definitely wouldn't use language like that. But I can see it in the way that they talk about my role in the army and how important it is to them. I couldn't agree more. <clears throat> They're absolutely part of uh, part of de defences and the army's outputs without doubt. Part of part of the team. Um, I, I wondered if um, I could bring it back to uh, a point you made earlier about the, uh, the digitised army and the, and the future in the digital space. Um, inevitably, whether you're working on the staff or deployed on a dispersed battlefield, we're going to be wor working increasingly rem um, at reach remotely. And which means we need to lead remotely. How has your team adapted in the current crisis to leading remotely? Um, and has your leadership approach changed at all? Yes, I, I think it has. Uh, I mean, as a team, we, um, uh, we, I think we had to work harder at being connected, um, literally, um, <laughs> but also uh, so that we felt personally still connected uh, as a team. Uh, I think we needed to work harder to make sure that we had shared situational and awareness and that we understood relative priorities within that uh, you know and both of those two are difficult to do when you're in the same workplace uh, so you know they're, they're just more difficult to do when you're dispersed um, I think we also needed to be very much clearer on our boundaries uh, and putting in mechanisms to make sure that we uh, we, we didn't stray outside those boundaries and I in some instances I mean literally that there was the times of the day that we were working, the time of the day that we weren't working, because um, it was just a little bit too easy for it to sort of consume life a bit when it's working either remotely or working from home, particularly. And I think uh, perhaps the most important thing, uh, and certainly my team will have been slightly slight sick of me saying it, but all of our work is so important, full stop but never more so than personal well-being and the well-being of our friends and our families. And I think, uh, you know, there was a little bit of a role reversal in some circumstances about how much we worried about ourselves versus our families. And I think, I know I did more worrying about my, my uh, me, you know, my close family and my friends. So anyway, yeah, I think it was that perspective uh, that I certainly went out of my way to reinforce, I think, in how we adapted as a team. Um, and I guess, and you know, that, and therefore, what does it mean that I've done differently? I, I think it's shone a light on my ways of working because I have been very conscious that where we are saying to people that you can't come into the workplace um, and you can very quickly feel uncomfortable about being in the wrong place, uh, that I needed to be demonstrating that I was doing that too. You know, so I literally on my ways of working about where I'm working from. So I'm so I'm role modeling what it is that we're asking everybody to do. And also in my ways of working to say that it's all right to switch off from work. Uh, you know, and again, my team will be sick of this. But when you go and leave, um, you know, I want you to I want you to forget your log on. I want you to have forgotten work so much and be detached from your work device that you've, you know, you've forgotten how to log back on because it's so important. Uh, I mean, it comes back to your thing about maintaining balance. Uh, so I've been trying to be more demonstrable uh, about all of that. 
Uh, and also, it comes back to my, uh, I just used to work harder, longer uh, to cover the detail and learning that I couldn't do that. So I think, you know, it has emphasised the need to be comfortable with, we don't need the 90% solution. The 60 or the 70%, if that's good enough to make a well enough informed decision, let it go. And I don't always do that very well. And I pro probably do a little bit more of that, if I'm honest. But that's what I'm trying to do. That's great. I mean, you're clearly demonstrating leading by example there at, at, at its most basic. Um, and I guess it's those micro behaviours that are so important to, to setting the, the climate um, uh, that, that, that is so important for you, you and your team. And just staying on, the, on that theme of self-care and personal care, mental health and resiliency is a very topical issue uh, at the moment, not just in the Army across defence, but indeed wider society. Uh, how's the Army tackling this issue and, and what can others learn from us? Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, well, we've done a lot, uh, whether, uh, and we're doing more. Uh, so through our work that um, we seek to raise awareness around mental health and well-being through the chain of command and also provide uh, some training and education that is improving the resilience of our workforce. Uh, so the fact that we've, um, through this is through our OpSmart work, um, that we have uh, put in place, I think, a programme that allows us to do both awareness and build resilience uh, across the force. Uh, I mean, I think that has been uh, I mean, that has demonstrated success. I think we are looking to do more of that and provide more resource. Um, I think aligned to that though, and maybe that enables us, um, but it's about being able to talk about mental health and wellbeing as a thing. Uh, you know, forever we talked about physical um, health and physical fitness. Uh, well, you know, mental is just as important arguably more important than that. Uh, so I think all of that has allowed us to be much clearer that that is important and much clearer that we are, you know, how and therefore we're going to prioritise it because it's important. Uh, so, and I, and, you know, we have definitely made progress. Uh, do we have more to do? Of, of course we do. Um, and it's for all of us, isn't it? It's at every level of leadership in the chain of command to take sort of that personal responsibility for their own health and well-being, uh, but also for those to the left and the right and around them. No, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think the success there is that across all ranks, as you say, it, it's now part of the conversation and people are not afraid to talk about it and they tackle these mm. issues, which is absolutely key. I'm conscious that time is uh, not on our side. So um, before I uh, let you off, off the hook, Jen, I wonder if I could uh, finish with a few quick fire questions. Firstly, then, uh, who's the best leader that you've ever worked with? Oh, I hate that question. So I, I want a bit of my CEO when I was an ad because he showed me what I could do what I could, rather than what I couldn't do. The first one-star civil service I worked for because he properly showed me how to do empowerment. Uh, and then I think the person that I worked for when I became a mum who, again, sort of put life in perspective for me uh, and... And, you know, I think that as a leader is fantastic. Anyway, that wasn't a short answer, was it? Sorry. Perfect. Most inspirational non-military leader? Uh, out there at the moment, I would say Jacinda Ardern. Um, and that's not because I'm necessarily a fan of hers, but I, I love it that she's a mum. She demonstrates her own personal leadership style and she's ploughing her own track. Most enjoyable leadership position? Oh, commanding officer. What is your biggest leadership challenge of the future? Uh, turbulence and uncertainty. 
I think, and that's probably for all of us. I mean, they, I mean, that's literally for the directorate, I think. There's a lot of turbulence in the short-term horizon and there's a lot of uncertainty writ large, isn't there? So I think it's helping everybody keep perspective when there's a lot of things changing around us and it's not very certain, but bounding what we can do to make a difference. And final question, General, if I may. What would you tell a young second lieutenant, Sharon Naismith, about leadership with hindsight? Oh, I say, I, I've said this in a couple of, I've referenced this already, but be comfortable in your own skin. See yourself as others see you. Worry less and enjoy the moment because there's lots of enjoyable moments. General, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed what for me was an honest, genuine and heartfelt reflection of almost three decades of service from the Army's senior female officer. A number of highlights for me. Uh, firstly, General Sharon's reference to emotional intelligence and empathy and how important a part both of these have played in her own self-development. As she stated, it's about seeing yourself as others see you and seeing others through their eyes. And how often do we do this ourselves? It, it can often take conscious effort, but it's a critical skill, a critical attribute to develop as a, as a leader. Because ultimately, leadership is about people. Second, I was really encouraged of how positive General Sharon was with regards to the significant work the Army's undertaken and continues to drive forward in making our organisation not just more diverse, but also more inclusive. The two are often spoken about in the same sentence, and clearly they are connected, but they are different. Now, how diverse is your organisation in terms of particularly of thought and experience? And how inclusive is your team, your department or business or institution? And what role do you play in making your team, your people, feel included, feel valued, from which you can then harness the breadth of that thought and experience? I was also struck by General Sharon's talk of the hierarchical structures in the Army. And just because we have a defined rank structure, which is, of course, for us an operational necessity, it doesn't mean that everything we do has to be through that hierarchy. And it's about empowering our people achieving that through shared understanding and shared purpose. And finally, and I'm really glad she spoke about it, the importance of family and the strong influence of General Sharon's parents and brother in influencing who she is today as a leader and as a person, and how very, very proud she is of her family today and the balance they provide for her. But more broadly, acknowledging the importance of all service families, without whom we would not be able to do our jobs we wouldn't be able to deliver the operational outputs that we do, and without whom we would not be the world-leading army that we are today. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please do subscribe to our podcast, visit our website, Centre for Army Leadership, and follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.